0: From Duke University, this is Zeroing In, the numbers behind the 2016 election. In each episode, we focus on one number that sheds light on a key issue in the 2016 election. I'm your host, Ronnie Chatterjee, professor at Duke's Fuqua School of Business and the Sanford School of Public Policy. Today, I'm happy to welcome Karen Agnes and Elizabeth Ananon. Karen and Liz, As you know, we're here to talk about one number behind an important issue in the 2016 election. Karen Agnes is the founder and president of the Network of Enlightened Women, an organization for conservative university women, and a contributing columnist to Forbes. Elizabeth Ananat is an associate professor at the Sanford School of Public Policy here at Duke. Welcome to you both, and thanks for being here.
1: It's great to be with you, Ronnie. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, so an important topic in this year's election has been about gender equality in the workforce. And the report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2014, which is the data we're gonna anchor on today, found that the median weekly earnings for American women were 17% less than men, a comparison of $871 a week for men to $719 a week for women. So what does this statistic tell us about gender equality in America? Karen, I'll start with you. You've spoken and written on this topic before. What does this number and others like it tell you?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to be discussing this with you today because I think it's often a misused statistic. Um, one of the important things about it is it's a median number. Um, it's an average of earnings for all men in the economy compared to all women in the economy. And, and it's full-time workers. So that's defined as people who are working 35 hours or more. And so what this number is, is it's a comparison you know, across the entire economy, men compared to women. What it's not is it's not comparing a man and a woman in the exact same job with the same experience, working the same hours. Um, And so I think the number often gets used, or I would like to say misused, as evidence of rampant discrimination in our economy when that's not actually, you know, what it's telling us.
0: And and Liz, what about you? You're a labor economist who did work in policy in the White House. How do you think about the things that Karen's bringing up? and, And what does the statistic tell you?
2: Well, it's true that 77 cents on the dollar or whatever number comes out in a given year, it doesn't reflect the idea that two people working the same job uh, with the same experience get paid that much differently. But I think it's still a useful statistic because it sums up several forces that are holding women back in the labor force. And if we really break it apart, it helps us to see how society can better support women in the challenges they face in the workforce and uh, in all of the work they do in America. So it's true. A part of it, about six cents, uh, people estimate, is the actual pay disparity in the same job. A lot of that's attributable to uh, differences in negotiation and the pushback that women get in negotiation, asking for raises, et cetera. And then there's a few more cents that are due, as Karen pointed out, to differences in hours worked. So. Uh, Women who are full-time workers tend not to work as many hours as men who are full-time workers at their jobs. But that doesn't come from women just liking to work less. In fact, childless women tend to work as much as childless men. Instead, it comes from the fact that women still bear the bulk of childcare, care, for the elderly, et cetera. And women actually work more hours each week than men if we look at the way they spend their time. It's just that more of their hours are at home and are unpaid labor. So, when we recognize that part of the statistic is driven by that, then we can think about how if we support affordable, accessible childcare for working families, if we support men in doing their share of work at home, then that would actually uh, reduce the wage gap by increasing the share of women's work hours that they're actually getting paid for. There are also differences in work history that, again, have to do with the amount of time that women take off to care for children that elderly. There are differences in occupation. A lot of that has to do with the hostility that women still face in male-dominated majors and careers. Uh, and we can talk more about these things. But I think that the 77 cents really captures that there are a number of hurdles that women face before they actually get to that paycheck.
0: Karen, what what do you think about that? I mean, in some sense, some of the conversation over the gender pay gap is focused on different choices that men and women may be making. But what I hear Liz saying is that we shouldn't just necessarily think of these choices in a vacuum. There could be other things impacting, for example, how, how much time men and women decide to spend on work at home versus work at the office. So how does that affect the way you look at this number and, and how policymakers should look at it?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm glad this See, Liz acknowledge the complexity of of, of the statistic, and that there is a little bit, you know, more more to it. Um, too often, what I find is on the left, and sometimes, you know, we hear our presidential candidates, you know, President Clinton right now, um, talks about equal pay, and I think the concern has to be, from we talk about this from a public policy perspective, is what legislation are our representatives in Washington going to do. And what is the impact on that, of that legislation going to be on the people who were trying to help in this situation? Uh, women, you know, we've already got the Equal Pay Act, uh, which prohibits um, paying men and women differently in the workplace. Um, we have Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, um, which prohibits discrimination based on sex. Uh, and so one thing we've got to be concerned about is when uh, Congress introduces new leg- legislation, What are the secondary effects of that legislation going to be when they try to get more in the middle of employer-employee relationships? And so I think it's important to acknowledge that the nuance, um, because a lot of times we see, for example, President Clinton talk about or presidential candidate Clinton talk about the uh, 79 cent um, for every dollar statistic uh, and use that as a as a reason for more legislation when you can't really talk about a solution, when you're not talking about the, the problem correctly
0: hmm And both Liz and Karen, and I'll start with Liz on this. I mean, one of the reasons you two are perfect for this podcast is I think both you, you spend a lot of time talking to young women who are about to embark uh, on really exciting and interesting careers. And so, Liz, when you think about this, I mean, for women graduating from a school like Duke, is this gap something that's going to affect them in their first job? Is it something that changes as they advance in the workforce? And, and how do we think about that in terms of the life cycle of earnings over a woman's career?
2: I mean, I do talk to uh, students who are graduating and give them negotiation advice. Uh, Talk to them about the ways that negotiation tactics need to be different for women than for men in order to be received well and to be eventually successful. But getting pay parity on your first job is only the first step because a lot of the places where uh, women's earnings start to lag behind men is down the road. It's in, I think Hillary Clinton tends to mention getting to pay parity, not just in the context of enforcing discrimination law in wages, but also she talks about it when she's talking about paid family leave, uh, when she's talking about affordable, accessible childcare for working families. And these are things where she's recognizing that this statistic captures a lot of things besides just the negotiation between you and your boss, that this is about the amount of effort. Uh, and time that women are able to invest in their careers relative to men, and that's something that I also talk to women about as they're looking forward to their to their future. Things like the kind of communication they have with their partner about how they want to invest in their career and and who will take responsibility for childcare and how. I've talked to students that uh, Sheryl Sandberg has a suggestion that unfortunately won't work for uh, most of the. Of the families in this country, but that does make a lot of sense for Duke graduates, which is to start a savings account for childcare. Childcare in this country costs more in most states than than the flagship state college tuition. We have uh, 521 plans. We have years to save for college, and we don't generally have years to save for our childcare expenses, uh, and. You know, for women who can, uh, investing so that they will have enough money to pay for childcare and will be able to continue to support their careers when their children are young is actually a really important question. It's a question, really, that men should be thinking about, too, because, of course, uh, they also have children, but unfortunately, it's something that more often female students worry about than male students.
0: And Karen, what about you? You've been having those same conversations as, as you've been speaking uh, around the country. How do you frame this pay equity issue, given what you know about it? And uh, and what advice do you give to young women and, and men potentially as they embark on their careers?
1: Well, I think it's really harmful that we have this narrative right now um, that really pushes this idea that when a woman graduates from college her and her her male classmate are gonna go to the same job and supposedly the woman is gonna pay a 22% tax uh, just because she's a woman. I spent last semester at Harvard's Institute of Politics as a fellow and spoke to a lot of students, including a big group of women, and asked them if they thought they would get paid less just because they are, they were women when they graduated. And a majority of these Harvard students agreed with that statement, that they really thought they were going to be paid less. I don't think it's good in our economy for women to think they're gonna be victims when they graduate, especially these women graduating from um, these the top schools who really have s- so much going for them. I also think it's important in this discussion that we enlarge it not just to pay, um, because we know in a number of studies uh, that actually women, um, especially women, and in particularly women with children, often wanna maximize different things. So a Pew study a couple years ago um, found that only 37% of working moms preferred full-time work. And we know often men are more focused on income growth, women, uh, sometimes especially women with children, are focused on jobs with some flexibility. Um, So I think it really does young people a disservice when we just focus on pay um, and instead we should be talking about the entire kind of employer-employee relationship and what kind of relationship they want set up.
0: And Liz, I want you to pick up on that interesting point that Karen is making, which, if I can paraphrase, I mean, she's asking, is pay the best indicator to look at when we're thinking about gender equality? And are there other things we should be looking at? So so how do you think about that as an economist uh, in the context of these numbers?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's uh, a job is, uh, as economists would call it, a bundle of things, it's pay, it's benefits, it's uh, support for uh, for the future, for career development, and it's flexibility, it's it's work environment, and all of those uh, all of those things are things that men and women should be negotiating with their bosses they're all part of the package again as we're thinking of sort of the students graduating from duke uh the students that Karen talked to uh graduating from harvard the issues are often very different for uh for workers lower down on the pay scale but uh those sorts of things are also issues where women often get underinvested in where they don't get the mentorship opportunities uh where if they if they negotiate for uh for family leave uh, or to to move off of a promotion track for a while while their kids are young, et cetera, uh, that they're often penalized for that. It's often hard for them to get back on. Uh, I think that being able to use language and not to see oneself as a victim, but to see oneself as an advocate for themselves is really important in going into those conversations with bosses, not just about wages, but around the entire package of work. It's also important that women negotiate with their partners. and. To some extent, yes, women do say that they that they need flexibility at work. Often, that's because they're not getting flexibility at home, and they don't see another way around it. They're uh, they're dealing with spouses who uh, don't feel that they can ask for flex time without sort of emasculating themselves, uh, or who aren't willing to help out, and. Uh, I really hope that young people today are thinking about uh, their careers and their relationships and, and being willing to advocate for themselves, uh, negotiate, rethink gender roles uh, in all of those conversations.
0: And just to quickly follow up, Liz, on on this, you know, because I'm the one who brought up the Duke and the Harvard comparisons, but both of you and your careers speak to much wider audiences than that. How do these numbers uh, look different for lower income women, uh, women of color? Uh, You know, I've seen some research that says that there might be disparities there. And if there are, I, I just I wonder why that might be. And then we'll come back to Karen on this on this interesting topic.
2: And so in some ways actually uh pay disparities uh with between genders and then holding other things constant so holding race or education constant are uh, are smaller lower on the ladder partly because of stagnation in men's wages in especially trade related unionized traditional blue collar occupations as uh, as those jobs and wages have stagnated uh women have actually made up ground the the metaphor that's often used is uh that they've been they've been swimming upstream so that they are fighting those same headwinds but are getting some forward motion uh whereas men uh who had been farther ahead are kind of being pulled down, and the equality is is on the horizon, but perhaps not for the reasons that we would hope. The biggest gaps we do see at the high end uh and a lot of it is about the fact that these high end these high wage majors and careers are still really male dominated. These are careers uh, that are, you know, require a lot of education, require long-term career commitment uh, without time off uh, in order to, for example, make partner at a law firm, get tenure at a university, uh, make it to the C-suite in a corporation. And just the very fact that those are still male-dominated occupations is itself a challenge for women because... A lot of these uh, majors and careers uh, include stereotypes about women's ability and suitability for these fields, male-dominated groups sometimes feature, as we now know to call it, locker room talk, uh, things like outright harassment and abuse, as we've just seen at uh, Fox News, for example, but really uh, in, in all sorts of institutions. And, uh, but, but not just that sort of outright stuff, but also just the loneliness that comes with being the only woman in the room. Uh, Men don't have to be pioneers in order to have well-paying jobs, but women often do. And, you know, when we enforce Title IX in schools and anti-discrimination policies at work, uh, that can make it easier for the women who do want to be pioneers. But we're still seeing a lot of those sort of glass ceiling effects uh, in a lot of the, the very high end of the ladder right now.
0: And Karen, I want to come to you uh, with a set of final questions uh, about the presidential campaign and what the next president should think about on these issues. You you look at these numbers that are being put out there, and and you think they could have some really dangerous implications for for policy if they're interpreted the wrong way. How would you like to see the next president look at this set of numbers, other numbers related to gender and equality in the workplace, and and what kinds of policy should we all be watching uh, to sort of see if um, the next president has got this right?
1: I mean, I'd like to have an honest discussion about a lot of these numbers and a forthright discussion. Uh, where I think people are really smart enough to be able to talk about trade-offs. And a lot of time when you talk about this number, for example, um, a big question that we don't discuss is the trade-off and the choices that people have to make. Um, and then in terms of specific policy, I do think there are some, some actions that we, we could take. Um, for example, the Fair Labor Standards Act. I know that the uh, Republican women in Congress have pushed forth legislation a number of times and they say, hey, you know, right now, if somebody works overtime, they get increased pay, why can't that option as well be um, more time off, so paid time off? So I think really giving employees um, maximum choices um, so that they can make those choices of whether they wanna maximize earnings or get more time off, whatever's best for them and their families. I think giving making those decisions decisions that people get to get to choose themselves, we'd be better off. And really, uh, on a lot of these economic issues, when you have a robust economy, when, the, when you have the government um, putting out fewer regulations and giving small businesses the chance to really grow, um, you really see some success at solving some of these things. I mean, take, for example, Obamacare right now, which is creating disincentives for businesses to hire more people because then they'd have to provide um, Obamacare, which increases costs. That doesn't help the economy. So I think what we want is really an, a robust economy where businesses and individuals can thrive and maximize choices for what is best for them.
0: Right. And, and Liz, what about you? Same question uh, about the next president and, and what they should do uh, with regards to this issue.
2: Yeah, uh, I see a lot of uh, enthusiasm for paid family leave, uh, and also uh, for enacting policies that encourage men to take their share of leave. For I see uh, from both of our candidates uh, support for increasing access and affordability of childcare for working families. I, I also think uh, just to take the opposite side on uh, Obamacare, the fact that Obamacare uh, makes sure that young women have access to uh, long acting Birth control allows them to to make these sorts of investments in their majors and careers to plan their families in ways that uh, will allow them to make the choices, uh, as Karen was talking about so eloquently, to really have uh, the type of work, the hours of work, earnings versus flexibility be actual choices that they can make versus ultimatums that are handed to them by employers that they don't have much power vis-a-vis.
0: Well, Karen and Liz, I want to thank both of you for a fantastic and on-point discussion. I can honestly say if people are listening and they agree with one or the other of you or maybe in between, I I think they, they got a lot of great sort of facts on both sides. And you both made your arguments really well. So that wraps up another episode of Zeroing In. For those listening, we'd love to have your feedback on Twitter at Aaron Chatterjee. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This is Zeroing In. Find us on iTunes and at DukeCampaignStop2016.org.